This is my first time flying in, coming to Nashville, and, there, and then Franklin. So this is a cultural experience. It's beautiful here. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, and th this particular church, I've heard about it for a long time. And uh, when Bill Sasser was much younger, and I've heard him at the old Bunyan conferences, but uh, so now I'm glad to at least get a chance to be here. This is a gorgeous building, by the way. Everything is just done in such a wonderful way. I'm going to do something a little bit different, uh, and, and they've allowed me uh, the grace to do this. As we go through this particular section in Galatians, you can ask a question at any time. And I'll stop and I'll, and I'll ask you, do you, you know, various times, do you have any questions? And, and if you do, just raise your hand and someone with a handheld mic will come to you so we can re record this. Um, so feel free. Uh, I would remind you to limit your questions to only those that really uh, build up my self-esteem. So uh, that's, you know, besides that, the sky's the limit. Let's uh, open with prayer. Father, just help, help me to honor you and how I handle your word. Protect, protect me from my pride getting in the way. Help all, help all of us to wrestle with your word, but for the purpose of loving you more and desiring to obey you more. That's what I ask. Amen. Okay. Now, let me give you a, just a kind of a, a bit of a review. Uh, the guys, uh, Gary last night and Zach er, earlier, did a, just a great job of setting things up, working through the first part of Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. But remember the issue. Remember the issue. The issue was that this was an established church in Asia Minor, you know, southwestern Turkey, and... Judaizers come from Jerusalem. They bring a different version of the gospel. The cross, that's absolutely necessary, a plus. The cross plus obey the Mosaic law. Of course, the Apostle Paul's argument is that the Mosaic law is the version of God's law tied to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant with Israel is a works covenant, and they are tied together. So if you're going to bring over the Mosaic law, you're bringing over a works covenant. And if, and if that's what you do, then you will have fallen from grace, because now it's salvation by works. And nobody can do that. Everybody's going to hell. That's the argument. And we always want to keep track of that as we walk through this. Because you're, you're going to see that Paul, we're going to pick it up for me. I am in Galatians 2, 15 through 3, 14. That's the section assigned to me. This thing seems to be taller than me, or I should say, I am shorter than other guys. So this seems, I'm, seems to be, uh, it's like going to your kids, uh, my grandkids, you, you could go to the, meet the teacher, and it's in first grade, and you're sitting in the little chairs, you know, to talk with the teacher. That's what I feel like. But it's good for my, for my pride. Okay, he says this. Beginning in verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. That's just a common way of referring to the Gentiles. They are the sinners. You know, and of course, the Jews are the people of God. Now, as we walk through this, I want you to understand at least where I'm coming from. My definition of Jews under the old covenant is this. That they are a temporary unbelieving picture of the people of God. A temporary, that means they're going to be replaced in God's plan by a spiritual Israel. The spiritual Israel is going to be mostly Gentile with a remnant of Jews. So they are a temporary, unbelieving, every valuation of Israel from Exodus onward is that there, they are, there are no believers in Israel. But we know there's always a remnant. But every evaluation is, nope, unbelieving. A temporary, unbelieving picture of the people of God. So they are not the real people of God. 
Ah, and that can be a bit of an inflammatory statement. Uh, but, uh, but, but that's what I'm assuming. Now, you say, well, you have to defend that. No, you don't. If you're behind a pulpit, you just say it, you know, and that's enough. Uh, but if you have any questions about that, you just please raise your hand and we'll talk about it. But that's where I'm coming from, just so you know. Okay? So he says, we who are Gentiles by birth, Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners. So Paul is putting himself, he's addressing really the Jewish question. He's not really addressing the Gentile question, but the Jewish question. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, turn with me, as before we move on, to Deuteronomy 28. And I just want to make a point. Deuteronomy 28, uh, historically, is in the life of Israel. They are about to enter into the promised land. Moses is going to die. Joshua is going to lead them across the Jordan into the promised land. But before they do that, they go, go over the Old Covenant one more time. There's a few alterations, additions that are t- taking place in preparation for going into the Promised Land after 40 years of wan- wandering in the desert. But I was uh, attending a wedding. It was a friend's son. And I was just there, uh, just part, part of the o- audience, and the, the guy who was officiating, the minister who was officiating the, the service, he wanted the, the couple to have a feel-good experience. That's what he wanted. And so he, he told everybody, everybody in the audience there, he says, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 28. And we're going to read verses 3 through 6. And this is, it's akin to the Irish blessing, almost. Okay, and by the way, I'm half Irish, so I can say that. Verse 3 says, you will be blessed in this. No, let me pick up in verse 2, which is, wasn't read. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. And we were supposed to actually, and people are, you know, almost like raise your hands, going to pronounce a blessing on this couple, young couple. And I'm sitting here thinking, I did not raise my hands, nor did I repeat it. Why? Because you are calling a curse on this couple. This is not a feel-good experience. Because then if you went over to chapter 2, verse 15, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, All these curses will come on you and overtake you. Then it says you'll be cursed in everything. Cursed in everything you touch, he's going to curse you. And if you, lest you miss it, the curses continue all the way, get down to verse 45, where he says, all these curses will come on you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees he gave you. This is not a gracious covenant. That's the last thing it is. It it is a works covenant. Never meant to save. Guys will address that later on in in Galatians. They will address that, that issue. But this is a works covenant. So one of the things that we want to make sure we understand is that you got to be careful that you don't read into these verses something that was never meant to say. And by that I mean we have two definitions of obedience in theological circles. Two definitions. One's called evangelical obedience. The other would be called perfect obedience. And by evangelical obedience, we're referring to the life of a believer. You know, you live for Jesus Christ because you love him. You have a new heart. You're a real believer. 
But your obedience isn't perfect. But because your heart is motivated because you love your Lord, well, you know, that is what identifies you as a real believer and a God lover. And we all understand that. So we're referring to evangelical obedience, and we immediately understand it's not perfect obedience. Some theologians read into these verses evangelical obedience, but that's not what it's saying. It is saying perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. See, this is, this is not a covenant to save. Never was. Not God's intention, not his plan. Not his plan. So I want you to keep that in mind as we work through Galatians, because that's what I think the Apostle Paul assumed the Galatians understood. Any questions about that? Giving me a first chance. First chance to, you know, what is he saying? You know. Okay. So let's go back since you don't have any questions. The first difficulty in my section begins in verse 17, where it says this, verse 17 and 18. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews, once again, Paul's looking at it from a Jewish perspective, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Because we go back to verse 15, The Gentiles are called the sinners. So he's referring to the same thing. We Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Now, what's he saying? Okay, let's kind of break it down step by step. First he says, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, so stop there. So when we're justified in Christ, we recognize that we we flee to the cross, and Jesus is going to take care of everything the Father has against us. His wrath is satisfied by the death of Jesus on the cross. So we, you come to your senses, you recognize you're a terrible sinner, you flee to the cross for full forgiveness and unconditional acceptance. We understand that. So that's what we do when we get justified. Well, he says, okay, so that's what Paul's assuming that we understand by in seeking to be justified in Christ. Then it says, if we do this, and Paul, of course, did this, we find ourselves also among the sinners. Well, that's true. That's true, because we're just like the Gentiles. We recognize we, everything we touch, we contaminate. God's standard for acceptance is absolute perfection. We are in deep trouble with this God. We have been in rebellion and we are terrible sinners, but we're fleeing to the cross for full, for full forgiveness. We're just like the Gentiles. Then he says, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Because now the issue, we actually see our sin in bold relief. And he goes, absolutely not. That's not possible. Now he's going to discuss that later on in chapter 3. We'll come back to that. Because that, that can't be so. That, then he says this, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. If I agreed with the Judaizers that the gospel needs to be redefined, the cross plus obey the Mosaic law, in particular be circumcised, then I am reasserting old covenant a works covenant. Because if you bring over the Mosaic law, this side of Pentecost, you're bringing over the old covenant, which is a works covenant, and God's going to hunt you down and destroy you because you can't keep it perfectly. So he says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, Paul's whole message, justification by faith alone. We, we don't, the only thing we bring to, to, to the Lord is our sin. That's the only thing we bring. Otherwise, we flee ourselves on his mercy that we embrace Christ as a perfect Savior and we desire to follow him as our Lord. That's all we do. So if I rebuild what I destroyed, and Paul did destroy this. He says, no, 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 no. This was never meant to be a means of salvation or an alternative, the old covenant. It was never intended to do that in God's plan. 
but that'll be discussed in greater detail beginning the latter part of chapter three, which is not what I'm supposed to talk about. Questions about so far? Okay. Now, beginning with verse 19, another difficult section. He says, for through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. Through the law, I died to the law. Now, what does that mean? And I don't think the commentaries are very helpful at that point, but let's break it down. Let's first address the, the phrase, I died to the law, because what we need, we need God to provide a commentary on this section. We need, we need some more, because this is not, he's not helping us here. You know, the Apostle Paul is assuming we understand the concept, but he doesn't explain the concept in Galatians. He's going to explain it in Romans. So turn to Romans chapter 7, and we're going to look at the first six verses of Romans 7. Because that's where the concept is introduced. And the, there is verses 1 through 3, which the Apostle Paul is giving an illustration to introduce some concepts, as you see. So he's, let's walk through the first three verses very quickly. He says, do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that'd be Jews, Mosaic law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. Well, that's true. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband's still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Now, are these three verses here to teach us about marriage and remarriage? No. It's not why they're there. They're simply a folksy illustration that, that, all, that everybody could relate to, to introduce concepts. That is, dying to law. That's the concept. He's got to explain this. Now, beginning with, chat, with verse 4, 4 through 6, he's now going to explain what it means to die to law. Now that we conceptually understand what he's, what, what he's trying to get at. He says this, verse 4, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have died to the law. Well, so what does that mean? He says that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So if you've died to the law, you will bear fruit. That part we know. Then verse 5 is going to explain it another way. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, an unbeliever, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. So what does this mean? As an unbeliever, when we are confronted by God's law, our reaction to it is rather severe. It stirs up our rebellion so that we sin even more more. And of course the historical illustration of this is Romans 5.20 is Israel, Mount Sinai. So if you go to back to Romans 5.20 where it says the law was brought in, oh, that's the Mosaic law, because remember the, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic law on Mount Sinai is the first formal giving of law. That's the argument of Romans 5.12-21. through 21. First formal giving of law. Now we know there was some law before that. We see examples of that. Like Cain and Abel, sacrificing. Where did they get the instructions about sacrifice? Well, obviously God gave them instructions, but we don't see any place where he gave it. Or you get to uh, Genesis 7 with God talking to Noah, talking about take you know, so many clean animals into the ark. 
clean, unclean, those distinctions. Nobody intuitively knows what that is. You had to be instructed about what is clean, what is an unclean animal. Well, God would have, would have had to instruct them, but we see the evidence these concepts exist, but we don't see any place where they were given. So we call this, for lack of any other term, oral law. We, we, we know there was some this, there was some law given, but, but it's like nebulous. We just see some evidence of it. That's it. But the first formal giving of law, and that's the argument in Romans 5, 12 to 21, doesn't happen until Mount Sinai. And so 5.20 says the law was brought in so that the trespass, which is Adam's sin, which we are guilty of, because Adam represented us, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. So if Israel is an unbelieving picture of the people of God, when God gave his law, Ten Commandments, Mosaic Law, to Israel on Mount Sinai, did that make them better or worse? Worse. Some, some would say, oh, no, 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 that just made them more aware of their sin. No, 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 that's not what it says. It says there is a spiritual chemical reaction taking place of rebellion that it just, it's like someone, well, it's like someone you don't like. Now, as believers, we have to battle with that. But someone you really don't like, when you see them, we'll just say, maybe it's in the political realm. Maybe. And you hear someone speak, and it just stirs up your emotions. Unlike any other person you listen to. This particular person just stirs you up. Well, Scripture says, the law was brought in so that in an unbeliever's life, our evil passions would be aroused so that we would sin more. So if that's what happened to the nation of Israel, of course, the purpose of that is that they would connect the dots, that they would see that there is no hope of being accepted by sacrifices, that they needed to flee to the God of Israel, and if they're going to be saved, he had to do it all. But of course, in God's plan, he was no intention of saving many Israelites. Not at all, which is why in Matthew 13, when Jesus is asked the question, why do you speak to the people in parables? Now, when I was, I became a believer halfway through my time at Penn State. And I remember I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. Now they're called Crew. And I remember, you know, there, there was a, they were talking about, there was a booklet they were promoting. And the idea was Jesus was the master teacher. And therefore, if you want to be a master teacher, then we follow Jesus' example. He taught in parables, you should teach in parables. Yeah, it sounds reasonable, but that's not what Scripture says. Matthew 13 says the reason he speaks in parables is to hide the message of the kingdom, to hide the message of salvation from Israel. That's the reason he taught it. He's to hide it. Because God's plan was not to save many Israelites. Now, they all hated him. They are all, as a result of Adam's sin, just like us. We all come into the world God-haters, caught up in our rebellion. But Israel had, had a unique role to play in his plan. So, qu questions? Questions? You just have to raise your hand. The mic comes. And then everybody who's watching on live stream can hear your perceptive question. There's pressure on you, not just on me. There's pressure on you. Just want you to know that. So verse 6 says, But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Once you become a believer, he's talking about the control of sin over the life of the unbeliever. When we become a believer, the Holy Spirit breaks that control, and now the, we are motivated to live for our Lord, whom we love. Now, if keep that in mind, because that's what the Apostle Paul is going to assume you understand. If you go back to the book of Hebrews, and you go back to chapter... Eight, where 
The author of Hebrews is, is talking about the new covenant, quoting Jeremiah 31, and the work of Je which is the work of Jesus on the cross to save all those whom the Father chose to save. Notice how he describes the new covenant. And pick it up in verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now when he says, I will put, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, he's not talking about actual laws. This is old covenant prophetic language to talk about new covenant fulfillment. What does he mean? Israel on Mount Sinai, they, they were experiencing external motivation to live for the God of Israel, external. They were given the Ten Commandments, Mosaic Law, and they were told to live for the Lord. What happened? Well, according to Romans 7.5, Romans 5.20, their, their sin just increased because they're unbelievers. When they're confronted by God's law, it stirs up their rebellion. They sin all the more. Okay, that's, that is what happened. But we are supposed to understand that in the new covenant, now the motivation moves internal. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, that motivation, the work of the Holy Spirit, guarantees that we will be transformed into incurable God-lovers. And there's no exceptions to that. Every person who experiences the gift of faith and the new heart, they become an incurable God-lover. They just do. That's the way it works. Fact is, if you flip over to Romans chapter 1... Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Just those two verses. Romans 8, 1 and 2. And it, be, and it starts out by saying, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you stop there and you read that, how would you answer, the, answer that? How would you explain why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, if you were like me, you would say, well, it's because he paid for all of my sin. Everything the Father has against me has been satisfied by the death of Jesus on the cross. Therefore, I'm unconditionally accepted, which is true. Unfortunately, it's not what Paul's talking about. Not here. Because he says, verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, he's not talking about forgiveness of sin. He's talking about the second thing that the cross accomplishes, which is a radical work of the Holy Spirit. And he, he says, the reason you know you're no longer condemned is because you are being internally motivated to live for the king. That's the reason, that's why you know your sins are forgiven. Because nobody's going to be a natural God lover. Nobody. But you're now in love with this Lord. You're being motivated to live for him. And in this section of Romans, we're not talking about three through five, that's justification. We're talking about six, seven, eight, which is sanctification, the work of the Spirit and the life of the believer. That's what they're talking about here. That's why you know you're no longer condemned. Because nobody naturally becomes a God lover. Nobody. I mean, I live in Mormon territory. In, I live actually in Mesa, Arizona, which is a bedroom community outside of Phoenix. And we have a Mormon temple right downtown. And all of, you know, so many of my neighbors are Mormons. My, my uh, primary care doctor, he, he's a Mormon bishop, a wonderful guy, just lost as I'll get out. But there, Mormons have no concept of having a personal relationship with the living God. No concept. Their concept is, what do I do? So it's like I grew up in a very large, committed Roman Catholic family. And Catholicism is very much like this. It's, you just do. 
Because before Vatican II, I, going to Mass, it was in Latin. It made no difference that you couldn't understand what they were talking about. You just had to be there, experience it. That's it. Just a mindless sort of existence. So here, the Apostle Paul is describing what does it mean to die to the law. It means you're no longer under the control of sin because you get a new heart. That's what he means. Because in Romans 7, really 4 through 6, he defines it. Now, one thing we did not mention in verse 6 of Romans 7, when he says, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, that is the control of sin. And the historical example of that is Israel in the Old Covenant era. He says, so that now we serve, as believers, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Now, at this point, I get a chance to sort of just briefly give my just very private opinion. And that is, I think that what Paul is saying, there's two ways of living. You serve in the new way of the Spirit, the old way of the written code. When you say the old way of the written code, well, what do you think of? What do you think of Israel under the Ten Commandments? It's what you think of. Mosaic law. He says we do, that's the, that is the way of the unbeliever. He goes, we don't serve that way. We serve the new way of the Spirit. We're being internally motivated by the Spirit of God to live for the King, which guarantees a transform life, fruit-bearing, perseverance, all, all of that. It, guarantee, it guarantees that. Okay, no. So what I think, I've been fortunate, I, I can just dump and go. I have no intention of walking you through the rest of Romans 7. But I think the rest of Romans 7 is talking about the old way of the written code. And then Romans 8 is the new way of the Spirit. But you, that'll have to come from at another date and time to talk about it. But uh, one thing I just want you to uh, think about, and that is we're just going to compare two verses real quick, that look at verse 23 of Romans 7, and then 8, 2. Just, I'll throw this out, and then we go back to Galatians. So he says, Paul says, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So this person in Romans 7 is a prisoner of the law of sin. Now, 8-2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So 7, this person is a prisoner of the law of sin. 8, he's been set free from the law of sin. Whatever view you take on Romans 7 has to account for that transition. Has to account. I think seven Paul is an unbeliever convicted of his sin, but that's for another discussion. But back to Galatians chapter 2. Questions? We'll get a... Aha, Gary has one. We have a mic. See, we even have a mic. Just thinking maybe for others here as well... <clears throat> When you suggest that the believer is no longer under the law, the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic law, yeah. does that are you implying, therefore, that we can live a lawless life or that there's no uh, commandment need ah. of obedience? Uh, is obedience, in other words... Uh, uh, Optional. Obsoleted or... Sure. The, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Okay. For instance, Romans yeah. 8. Good. Well, going back, because Zach, in the previous session, took us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says, I'm not under the Mosaic law, but I'm not without law. Don't get the idea that I'm without law. No, 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 no. I'm under Christ's law. He, there is a different version of law for the New Covenant era, from Pentecost to the Second Coming. It's similar to, but distinctly different from, the Mosaic Law and Ten Commandments. It's different. 
The Ten Commandments is a summary of, of the requirements of the Old Covenant, whereas the law of Christ is, it is laws. Because obedience is, you know, the, this is the way we show our love for God, we keep his commandments. The debate is over, well, what commandments are we to keep? We're never without law. It's just which law? So we're under the law of Christ, which is a different version of law than the Mosaic law. So in other words, the believer is still obligated oh, yeah. to not commit adultery, to not yep. steal, and so on. I just don't want the idea to possibly be conveyed from what you're saying that the Ten Commandments are now obliterated and we have a whole entire new set of commandments as if there's no transitioning of those commandments into the New Testament, but we're not under the covenant. Ah, okay. Explain that a little Let bit. Let me clarify that. Yeah. You know, these difficult questions only come from Massachusetts. They don't come from other places. Um, the, the summary of the requirements of the Old Covenant, a works covenant, are found in the Ten Commandments, that's why they're called the Tablets of the Covenant, and the rest of the Mosaic Law. It is true, nine of the Ten Commandments, in one form or another, are brought over into the New Covenant era, but never as the Ten. Because as the Ten, they are the summary of the requirements of a works covenant, which is why in 2 Corinthians 3, they will describe the Ten Commandments as a ministry of death, ministry of condemnation. That only makes sense if they are a summary of a works covenant that's going to kill you. That's true. But nine of the ten are brought over. Sabbath is not brought over. So nine of the ten, but never as the ten. Because as soon as you describe it as the Decalogue, the ten, you are describing the Old Covenant, a works covenant. So that's why they're called the Tablets of the Covenant, which is a whole other discussion, which is a rabbit trail, whether to indulge Gary to go down that direction, I don't think so. But that's the idea. That's the idea. So we're never without law, because sin, 1 John 3, 4, sin is breaking the law. So if there's no law, there can be no sin. But the debate is over which law are we under? Which law? So when I was a Presbyterian pastor of what is now the PCA, before I changed on baptism and left it, I was a strong Sabbatarian, you know, which is very tough for me because I do love watching football on Sunday. So there's, you know, there was a price to pay for my faith. But when I came into New Covenant theology, we now... I, in my opinion, a more correct understanding of biblical law, I was freed up. You know, put my feet up, watch the game on Sunday. I was freed up to do that. Okay, let's continue. So now in verse 19, we've sorted out what does it mean to I died to the law? We've sorted that out, but he says, through the law, I died to the law. What does he mean, through the law? Well, it has to have something to do with Paul's argument here. It has to. So, in what way would God use the Mosaic law to convince Paul that that's not the way to go? Well, because he saw the futility, the requirement of the Mosaic law as part of the Old Covenant is absolute perfection. That's a hopeless case. And so he saw that, so that he then he hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. Actually, Jesus appears to him, tells him everything, but he flees, we would say, he flees to the cross. Jesus has to do it all. He's got to do it all. But it was the Mosaic law that got him going, recognizing the hopelessness of that avenue of obedience, the hopelessness of that. That's what got him to turn to Christ, ultimately. And of course, when he turned to Christ, he died to the law. Because now he has a new heart, he has his sins forgiven, 
And he also has this radical work of the Holy Spirit that guarantees he will bear fruit, he'll be, he, he will be a God lover. And that's, and so from that point of view, I think, through the law, I died to the law. Through the law. I think that's what he means. Questions about that? Because that is a bit controversial, how we handle that. Okay, let's move on then. Then he says this, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just a point here, when he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no, no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We need to understand just very quickly the concept of being in Christ. What we mean by that and, and what we don't mean by that. What we mean is that everything we have, Jesus does as a believer. Jesus accomplishes everything I need. I, I, I don't contribute anything except my sin. He does it all. So I am in Christ. But it's not a mystical thing. There is an attempt today to make this very mystical. It's not that. What it means is he does it on my behalf. And as a result of that, I'm in the family of God. He is my king, he is my Lord, and my Savior. He does it for me. That's the idea. But when it says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, see, this is using a phrase to communicate a concept. Jesus doesn't actually live in me. Nor does the Holy Spirit. You need to think a little bit. Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an influence. He's a, he's a person. And as the third person of the Trinity, he is God. He is everywhere at the same time without being tied to anything. He's separate from the creation. But he's everywhere. So when we use phrases like the Holy Spirit in me, we're not describing something spatial. We're not saying he resides south of kidney, north of pancreas. We're not saying that. We're saying he does something in believers that he does not do in unbelievers. He makes you Christ-like. And that's why when he says Christ lives in me, the Holy Spirit never promotes himself. He never does. Fact is, if we go back to John chapter 16, remember the two places in the Gospel of John talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, John 14, John 16. And in John 16, pick it up in verses in 12 through 16, he makes this point. Pick it up in verse 16. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Holy Spirit will receive from me what, I, what he will make known to you. Now, what does he mean? How do you know the Holy Spirit's working in somebody? How do you know? Are they excited about the Holy Spirit? No. They are more than committed than ever to live for Jesus Christ. That is how you know the Holy Spirit is working in someone's life. They're not excited about the Holy Spirit. That's not the point. If you're kind of not raising hands, no, if you raise two hands, that's a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit. One, no, 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 not just one. And not halfway. You've got to get extended. Shoulder surgery notwithstanding. You've got to do that. No, but that's the point. So when they say in Galatians 2 here at the end that Christ lives in me, he's describing the work of the Holy Spirit in transforming you to become Christ-like. That's, that's what, remember Jesus on the cross? Remember Hebrews 10, 14, where it says, describes the work of Jesus on the cross, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's, this is referring to this. You are being, yes, he does pay for all of your sins, absolutely true, but he also transforms you. And that's really the first 27 verses of Romans chapter 8 describes what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of every believer. Not what he might do, but what he is doing. Gary. Uh, yeah, let me ask one question here in regard to crucified with Christ, living with Christ. 
Yes. This has a clear connection, of course, to the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, this new creation, and, and so he is identifying our life, our union with Christ, our in Christ, in terms of resurrection life and new creation. Uh -huh. You know, later he'll come back and talk about the Spirit. That seems to be, uh, that doesn't seem to be a clear focus in terms of, you know, I, I want to know the power of the resurrection. We tend to turn to the resurrection as comfort at somebody's funeral, you know, but actually living in the power of the resurrection. And, and he's saying that uh, in, a, in a bit, uh, uh, in a more obtuse way here, not directly as in some other passages. But how do you see the resurrection of Christ, him, you know, with this resurrected body, new creation? How does all that fit together? Okay, I, I would go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 4, where Paul says, we were therefore, talking about believers, we were therefore buried with him through baptism, because baptism is you identify with Christ. You identify. He does it all for me. Okay, and, and I believe in that saved by faith. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, that we're identifying with Christ, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He's talking about a transformed life. So the resurrection, because Jesus rose from the dead, Paul's argument is, you are going to come alive spiritually. And, and just as the certainty of Jesus' resurrection, so also the certainty that you are going to come alive as a God-lover. There's no way that cannot happen. The radicalness, and Gary talked about that uh, last night, the radicalness of what it means to be a believer, a real believer in Jesus Christ. Which we, in no matter, at least from the Reformation onward, in my own studies, there is always perpetual attempts to water down what does it mean to be a believer. There's always attempts. You almost ask, what is the current one for us today? But there's always attempts to water it down. When Scripture says, no, it's pretty radical. It's so radical you can't hide it. And that's the way it is. But we must move on. He makes this point. He says in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now, of course, his whole point is, if salvation was by works, then, of course, we would get the credit. We did it. And that means Christ died for nothing. But, of course, that's not true. He has to do it all. But righteousness. What's the definition of righteousness? Now, admittedly, on the surface, that sounds like a rather basic question. And yet my experience as a pastor or as a teacher is this is a confusing subject. So we need God to interpret his own word. So keep your finger, Galatians 3, go Galatians, and go back to Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. The context is justification. In particular, chapter 4, he's talking about the way we get the work of the cross is by faith. So chapter 4 is all about faith. But notice, we'll pick it up in verse 6. He's going to use David as an example of someone who has saving faith. Verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of, of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Quote, he's going to quote, in a brief fashion, Psalm 32, just the first two verses. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. What is righteousness? Righteousness is having a status of perfection. And unless you can achieve a status of perfection. You cannot be accepted by the God of heaven and earth. That's the whole point. You can't. So the question is, how do we get righteousness? So here, it's a bit controversial, so we'll ignore it. 
No, we won't ignore it. So we, we want to talk about it. how do we get the righteousness. Now remember, we just look at two quick passages very quickly because our time is moving on. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 through 18. Context is the cross. Jesus is our high priest, and he, and he offers his life on the cross on behalf of those for whom he represents, that is, all those whom the Father chose to save, and he secures something. And this describes what does he secure? Verse 14, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Oh, by the way, I'm reading from the New NIV. The Holy Spirit also testifies testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Now that refers to being made perfect or being perfected. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So the two things we get are a radical work of the Holy Spirit, which we've already discussed, we get a perfect payment for sin. How do they describe a perfect payment for sin? Having been made, he has made perfect forever. Now, when he, that phrase describes forgiveness of sin. And the reason we're addressing this is we get righteousness not from Jesus obeying the law for us. That is not how we get it. That's how he got it. He was God who became man, who perfectly obeyed the law. He was perfect. He became righteous. But we get righteousness because he pays for our sins. That's how we get it. We get the righteousness of God because he pays for all of our sins. And according to Romans 6, Romans 4, 6 through 8, the definition of righteousness is perfection. If you get your sins forgiven, you achieve the righteousness of God. And if you have the righteousness of God, you are unconditionally accepted. Because in Hebrews 10, 14 through 18, they're not remotely talking about the law-keeping of Jesus. They're only talking about his death. Which is why, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you don't celebrate the law-keeping of Christ. Because that's not what saves you. That qualified Jesus to be a lamb without blemish, to be our substitute on the cross. That's why there's only, Jesus is the only way. He's the only person who could qualify to be our substitute. He had to be perfect. But once he goes to the cross, then he purchases, he secures righteousness for all those for whom he died. And the righteousness is by paying for their sins. We achieve a status of perfection. So we are viewed by God as having been made perfect forever if we have our sins forgiven. Okay? Questions? I would think there should be a question in there somewhere. One more verse, and then, and then we are uh, zipping on to the end. Romans 8, 3 and 4. Romans 8, 3 and 4, it's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we looked at the first two verses. Verse 3 says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Because the law can't transform us. It's the Holy Spirit that transforms us. The law has a role to play. But, but apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, law doesn't do anything. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. It's just talking about the cross. And so, this is the result of the cross, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We have this new heart. We got that part. But if you get your sins forgiven, the cross, the righteous requirement of the law has been met. Now, in this context, there is no discussion of the law-keeping of Jesus. No discussion. Just the cross. Because getting your sins forgiven 
gives you a status with God as though you have obeyed perfectly because you are given a status of perfection. You now have the righteousness of God because everything God has against you has been satisfied by the death of Jesus on the cross. Everything. So, that's all we're going to do unless you have a question. Yes? Uh, well, no, 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 no. Here. It's, Where does imputation fall into that? Oh, there's always imputation. Imputation would be the forgiveness that Jesus purchased on the cross has to be placed into our account. Otherwise, we're never accepted by, by the Father. So he, we call that his work on the cross, or what is called passive obedience, is imputed to us. Without imputation, there's no salvation. Where we differ with classic covenant theology is that the imputation of the law-keeping of Jesus. We say, no, that's not really in justification. That that's not what saves us. And there is no verse. This is classic covenant theology. Um, when I was in seminary, a long time ago, I admit, but when I was at a Presbyterian seminary, and they would say that, uh, you know, what, what is a, a, a little phrase, we call it a ditty, to explain justification, just as if I'd never sinned. And we used to, they used to kind of make fun of that. No, 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 no. Because getting your sins forgiven only gets you back to square one. What achieves eternal life is Jesus obeying the law in your place. That's classic covenant theology on justification. And that's, I think it's not true. I don't think that's true at all. I think so when we go back to, we say, that go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam represented all of us so that when he sinned, we're all blamed for his sin. That's, we, we understand that. But did Adam represent us in any other sense? I would say no, because there's no Bible verse. Bible's very clear, Romans 5, 12 through 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23, talks about we're being blamed for Adam's sin. There's no problem with that. But did Adam represent us in another sense? My suggestion is there's no Bible verse. It is a theological theory from a system of theology, but, it's, but there is no scripture to back it up. Okay, but that's, see, I, I knew I could trouble you and for just a little bit, but let's continue. He says in chapter three, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain. So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's just making the point, guys, it's all because Jesus does it all on the cross. He does it all. It's not he does his part and I do my part. Because remember, as a believer, my part, I always contaminate what I do. I love the Lord, but I can't conjure up a perfectly pure motive. I wish I could, but I can't. I really can't. But I do love him. And because I do lo love him, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I, I'm not what I used to be. But of course, at the same time, the Holy Spirit's progressively making more aware of what it means to be holy. So if, if I thought I was crummy this year, wait till next year. But I'm actually growing. It's just I'm progressively becoming more concerned about the remaining evil in my life. That is true. That's part of the evidence that you're a believer. This progressive growth in holiness, it's relentless. And unless you grab your joy from the work of Jesus on the cross, you will lose your joy. 
Because you and I tend to be preoccupied with how we fall short. We just are. Most of my sin that I am distressed about, you don't even see. It's all inside. It's all inside my head. And it bothers me more and more and more. But that's a good thing. It's just not always pleasant, but it is a good thing. Let's close. He says, understand then, verse 7, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Quote, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Just closing, just a comment about the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is the unveiling of God's plan to have a people take them into his land. If you just are reading about the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament, you would think that the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is the Old Covenant. God is going to produce a physical people through the descendants of Abraham and take them into a physical land, land of Canaan. But, as it will be picked up in the next section tonight, from Galatians 3.15 onward, actually the Abrahamic covenant is all about the work of Christ on the cross. That's what it's all about. Where Jesus purchases a people on the cross and takes them into a land that doesn't end. So the Abrahamic covenant actually embraces both the old and the new covenant. The picture as well as fulfillment. So if you're reading in the Old Testament, you would think that the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled by the old covenant. If you're reading in the New, you go, no, 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 no. The Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled by the New Covenant, the work of Jesus on the cross. Picture fulfillment. And then the last thing, oh, he says, all nations will be blessed through you. That's referring to Pentecost onward, the New Covenant era. Pentecost, the second coming. In the Old Covenant era, in the Old Testament, there is no great commission. Why? Because to find the people of God, you don't share your faith. You just get a GPS out and you find Israel. Because they are the picture of the people of God. But now, beginning at Pentecost to the second coming, now the Holy Spirit's motivating believers. Remember Acts 1 8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Beginning at Pentecost, now the Holy Spirit is motivating believers to take the gospel to the world because God has his elect from every tribe, nation, tongue. This is the era of fulfillment. This is the era of the Great Commission. There was nothing before. The Old Testament is not the time for believing, which is why we struggle trying to figure out a gospel message in the Old Testament. We do. Because it wasn't the time for believing. It was a time for preparation, for illustrating. Yes, there was always a remnant of believers, but it's like they're asterisks. But once Pentecost hits, Jesus, his, he, describing his ministry, he, his message was repent for the kingdom of God is near or at hand. The time for entering the real kingdom is about to begin, historically. Because Israel wasn't in the real kingdom. They're only in the picture of the kingdom. That's why he says, Nicodemus, Nick, you've got to be born of the Spirit to get into the real kingdom. Nick, you're not in it. You're not in it. Let me tell you. This is a very radical shift from the old to the new. And then he closes. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. We saw that in Deuteronomy 28. As is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. If you seek to bring the Mosaic law to this side of Pentecost, in the new covenant era, then you are going to be bringing, he, Paul says, that it is inextricably tied to a works covenant. And if you're going to bring over the Mosaic law, you've got to bring over the old covenant, and that old covenant is you will be cursed if you don't keep it perfectly. Clearly, no one, verse 11, who relies on the law is justified before God, because it demands perfect obedience. Because, because the righteous will live by faith. Of course, in context, it's faith in the saving work of Jesus on the cross. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was cursed by the Father. He was cursed. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So this is an amazing section. It really is. But it does assume that you, you get some of your basic understanding of terms from other places. So you can you know, Galatians is not going to explain everything, but it assumes, example, it assumes we talk about die to the law, it would assume you've, you've, like, you've read Romans 7, 1 through 6, because that's where Paul defines it. So what we do is we want to pay attention to how God interprets his own word. But the wonderful thing is that we take from this. This is, uh, Gary brought it out so beautifully last night. This is such an amazing salvation. It has nothing to do with works. Yes, when you embrace Christ as Savior, you must also embrace him as Lord. But the good works we do are never the cause of our acceptance. They only function as evidence. They're not good enough to, to function as cause but they are good enough to function as evidence that we belong to the king, that Jesus died for us by name on the cross. Okay? This, let's pray. Father, just thank you for the just amazing work of your son on the cross. And yet there's all these attempts to water that down or to change it, or to redefine the gospel. Help us to Stay the course, be faithful to you, take you at your word, but thank you for this amazing salvation that gives us unconditional acceptance with you forever and tr radically transforms us now. But you get the